This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Virginia Trioli and welcome to You Don't Know Me. How much can you learn about a person by asking just a few questions? At what point was there a fork in the road? What's their secret pleasure? Well, I've got seven questions up my sleeve. Let's see where it takes us with our guest, Grace Tang. She's a well-known advocate for survivors of childhood sexual abuse, the 2021 Australian of the Year, and now she's an author. Her memoir is called The Ninth Life of a Diamond Miner. Grace Tame, great to see you. Welcome. How are you going? I am well. What was that process like for you of, of putting your story down on paper? Oh, well, I mean, it was lots of different things, you know. It was confronting in some parts and uh, in other parts it was eye-opening even for myself, you know. My my memory is somewhat like a magician's scarf, you know. You, the more you pull on it, <laughs> uh, the more comes out. Yes. And I've got a photographic memory uh, and I also... Uh, I'm neurodiverse, I'm autistic, and I don't really have, uh, uh, you know, there's no such thing as sort of past, present and future for me. There Mm. is only um, the moment. And I sort of see uh, time, as I describe it in the book, through sort of like the, the... the glass of a front-loading washing machine. And so at any given moment, I can pull out a memory and it is as, as vivid as, you know, uh, the current moment. And that can be both a blessing and a curse yes. depending on the, 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 the association with that memory. And it was, it was really powerful and empowering for, the, for that reason uh, because uh, I, I wanted to part ways with a particularly dark time in my life. Um, and it was the first time that I really was able to put together a chronology um, of, of, of the abuse, the child sexual abuse that I suffered when I was, um, you know, 15 and, and also, well, technically 14 as well because I was, I was actually in the class of, of the, the perpetrators, um, you know, for a whole year. Uh, before the the actual physical abuse started. And, you know, it was only actually in, in writing the book when I was sitting down and and really thinking about it, you know, for the first time and giving it that, that full attention that, you know, the, the scales were fully falling from my eyes, you know, such as the experience of grooming that it does take a really long time for, you know, a child who then, you know, goes through the the, the phases of adulthood mm. um, and is able to contextualise some of those experiences that they, they begin to realise all the, the, the complex layers of psychological manipulation. You know, it, on average, it takes a, a survivor 23.9 years and it's only been 12 years for me. I'm 27 now, but I've known this man since I was. I was 14 years old, you know, mm. and he used to, you know, come up to me and look down his nose at me. And, you know, he's six foot two and I'm five foot three. He's thereabouts, I think, you know, and he's twice my size and he was four times my age at the time and he would say things like, you know, you going grey. And my editor was the one who introduced me to this concept of, of negging, which is where, um, you know, the person who makes a comment puts you down deliberately so that you need to seek their approval. Um, and it's actually a seduction technique. Yeah, which keep, keeps you in their thrall, yeah. keeps you in their power. Uh, th- there's so much that's remarkable about this book. I-, I loved and responded very strongly to the strength of your voice individually. It's a very, it's a very particular, individual, uh, you know, character-driven 
story that you're telling here. I mean, it's your voice alone. It doesn't sound like the voice of any other memoir that I've read. <laughs> it's, the best, it's the best proof that I didn't ghostwrite it because I, <laughs> I, have, a very ten, I have a very tangential voice as well because you, yes. because of my neurodivergence, I so often describe my um, the way I think as being like if you've ever seen the, the luge at the Olympics, you know, if I go off in my neural pathways, you know, if I go off on a tangent, I'm, I'm in my sperm suit and I'm off, off away, you know, off on my tunnel, you know, and I but go... But that's what I like about it as well. Well, but, but also when you and you recount, and I think the listener needs to know, and I think this is so important for for survivors of um, of, of grooming and child sexual abuse, uh, for parents who have maybe had that experience of their children as well, for for those who want to be warned about it, you are particular in the detail, and you are unapologetic about that. Yeah. And you keep referring back to the listener, which is, and if this is too tough for you, well, you can send your email to, you know, I am not sorry at, you know, it is your problem.com. And, and I love that. I love the fact that you, you step right up to that place and say, sorry, you're just going to have to deal with this. Yeah, well, I think also too, you know, I brought my humour to it. And and I think that's important, you know, and, and I realise, you know, that uh, it's not making light of, of the issue, but it's bringing a lightness as a survivor, you know, I'm bringing myself to it. And, and that's, that's really important because, you know, survivors should not be bound to live out their trauma for the rest of their lives. Ever, exactly. And we are just people, you know, the, you know, it's one in six boys and one in four girls that experiences um, sexual abuse before their 18th birthday. And that's probably an underreported statistic because of the shame and blame that is dis- disproportionately um, directed towards survivors of abuse is probably far greater. It's probably you know far more common than that, and that in of itself is is common um, already. You know when you hear hear those numbers, and you know I've s- sat with all manner of people from all walks of life. You know it does not discriminate, just as life itself does not discriminate. It doesn't matter what you look like, where you come from. You know whether it's a big burly man with a beard. You know in his late sixties. Um, you know I've got friends of all descriptions who have had this um, or similar things happen to them and you know when you traumatize these people or when you reignite this experience for these people it is as good as uh, you know uh, scaring a rottweiler or um, you know a big you know big animal or even a grizzly bear or something like that you will get that fight or flight response yeah you will get that fight or flight you will reduce them to their amygdala you will reduce them to their fear responses and it is just plain cruel You'd never know it, but I... Oh, well, <laughs> actually, it's funny you should say that. that I, you'd never know it, but I, I'm actually a ma- massive comedy nerd. Um, and I, when I say that, I mean, like, going way back to uh, The Goons and, um, you know, like, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. And, and John Cleese. And, yeah, yeah, and Pythons and stuff like that. Tell so, us about the John Cleese connection for those who might not know it. Well, so it goes back to when I was living in uh, Santa Barbara. So I moved to America when I was uh, only 18 years old. Uh, um, I was very fortunate in that um, I, I had the opportunity to, to run away sort of thing. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, Catch-22 we'll, we'll, sort of thing. We'll lace some irony around Yeah, that, yeah, yes. race, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I moved to America when I was when I was 18 and I, I was just studying at a community college, um, so not one of those big, um, you know, like the posho we, ones. Posh, posho ones or, the, or, or even one of the state ones um, in California. It was just a two-year community college. You can only get associate's degrees there. But I was living in Santa Barbara and um, a friend of mine, Josue, uh, who's um, been like a brother to me, um, he was in one of my classes at the community college. 
and uh, he was also interested in um, in comedy and they had this little comedy group called Comedy Hideaway in Santa Barbara that just did like uh, gigs behind restaurants. I think there was one um, called Petrini's which was an Italian restaurant in Galita which is one of the little um, towns in Santa Barbara County and Camilla Cleese who's John Cleese's daughter who's a great comedian, a stand-up comedian in her own right and John never did stand-up, he was more of a sketch comedian. But Camilla Cleese, who's also very tall like John, so John's six foot five and Camilla's six foot one. She was doing shows. And this is one of the, so this is one of the myths actually about um, um, fame and famous people. I think people think that when you're, when you're famous, you're just automatically a billionaire or something like that, but uh, certainly not the case. And um, certainly not the case for Camilla. She was um, working very hard mm. and, and just doing these small gigs. And I think there were only 20 people in the audience that night when she was doing a gig. And one of them was myself and Hostway. And I went up to her afterwards and um, we started talking and uh, we hit it off. And she was sort of saying how, you know, her dad was um, uh, in, in Australia recently. And I just happened to know that because uh, Tasmania is such a small place. He'd been visiting Tasmania. Right. And of course, there's only, what, you know, 60 of us down there. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> he was at he was at Bonorong Wildlife Park where my cousin... Oh, yes. my, I've got a I've big... I've been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My, and my cousin Ryan, who's one of um, my, um, you know, on my mother's side, there's 11 of us cousins. And he worked at Bonneron Wildlife Park and had spotted him there. So, of course, he told me about it. And um, then, so how did this all lead to yeah, you but, working but, with him? But um, anyway, Camilla and I hit it off and she said, oh, you know, we should sort of stay in touch. And we did. And then down the line, um, I, you know, because I always did art as just a hobby, yes. um, something my mother and I connected over because my mother is a great artist. She, um, she grew up with lots of skills. She comes from a big sprawling family of um, sisters. She's got eight sisters, actually. She's um, five full, well, four full sisters and four um, half sisters. But uh, yeah, she's one of her many skills is doing art and she taught, it, she taught me to do art. And um, I drew while I was over there. I, I liked drawing portraits and stuff. And one of them eventually was, um, was Camilla's dad. And because uh, I'd grown up watching Monty Python through my dad introducing me to, to like Faulty Towers and stuff like that too. And Camilla saw it and she sort of said to me, she was like, oh, well, lots of people draw pictures of my dad and not all of them are very flattering. <laughs> um, and she said, oh, would you like to come down and meet him? He's going to do a show actually um, to advertise his own memoir um, at uh, a theatre in Glendale called the Alex Theatre. And so I remember going and taking the, um, the train. It was a three-hour train ride from um, Santa Barbara down to, down to the theatre in Glendale. Then eventually, a couple of years after that, she asked if I would do a, a commission, a Father's Day commission for him. And he ended up liking it so much that he wanted to sell it as merchandise for his own tour around Amazing. the States. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's how that happened. What about the fork in the road you almost took? Well, I almost... So, you know, again, fame can be many different things and um, you, can, you can take... You come to many junctures in your life. I almost went down the path of... Um, you know, doing sort of more uh, commercial things. Like I um, was offered, uh, you know, some contracts, some sponsorships with like L'Oreal Paris and Nike and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, almost did that and the World Economic Forum and almost did that sort of thing. And that's not any particular commentary on those brands. It's just I sort of decided that I prefer to do more advocacy-based stuff mm -hmm. and realised that that wasn't sort of the thing that I would like to do. And See, that's interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, you're talking the fame, about the fame there of being Australian of the Year and, and you being so outspoken and, and being such a passionate advocate. I'm sure people would be coming for you and those corporations and also NGOs <laughs> and others. Coming for me. Coming for you, <laughs> absolutely. You know, hey, it's all commodities in the end, isn't it? Take and it. This sounds like a taken fit. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, it must have been a big challenge to think, hey, you know, I mean, you could commercialise the heck out of all of that. Yeah, but, and you, but you didn't. It's interesting because, you know, you have to weigh up too, is it, it might benefit the cause. And it's it's hard because some things are, it's just as sort of friends can sometimes be foes and, you know, snakes can sometimes be ladders. And I say that in terms of is something an opportunity or is it is yes. it not? Yeah. You know, it's hard to see sometimes in the moment and then sometimes you don't see it until after you've taken the opportunity and you're down, you're further down the line. It's And hindsight is twenty twenty, as you know. So it's, it's really hard, but you have to kind of, when you've come from, like in my experience, when you've come from instability and there's different forms of instability, you know, there's financial instability, there's emotional instability, there's um, all kinds of instability. And I think sometimes, I think, you know, what I've seen certainly in the media is a lot of um, mismatched coverage where people have projected all sorts of different um, views onto me from lots of different sides as well, you know, yeah. saying like, oh, you know, she's been very fortunate and very privileged she's come from money and all these sorts of things like that where that's not necessarily the case you know I come from two parents who actually grew up in the working classes and worked very hard to you know rise into very middle now middle class success um, and have projected because of their um, struggles you know they've they've sort of done a good job of projecting where they are now and you sort of that you you have to ask yourself these questions like what choices do you make to to set yourself up? Mm. Um, and it, and it can be it, it can be really hard. Really hard. Any regrets about those decisions? About that decision? No, no. I'm I'm glad because I believe I actually believe in a, the principle of of the law of diminishing returns as well in lots of different ways in yes. terms of um, you know not just sort of finances but but also in terms of like. I believe in in quality over quantity, um, you know, in in life, in friendships and everything like that. I always... I always arrange things in rainbow order. So... (laughs) All right. So, so like... Explain. um, uh, My pencils and um, sometimes my food too and um, <laughs> uh, anything that I see, like books, books on a shelf too. Welcome Everything's to the neurodivergent mind. It's yes. lovely. Oh, I just love doing What it. if the things aren't coloured? Would you do it chromatically? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yep, so yep. you'll do it light to dark or dark mm, to light. Yep, 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 okay. Yep. Excellent. And if they're not ordered, that's annoying. I'll reorder it. You'll reorder it. Okay. <laughs> I'll fix it. I never? I never sympathise with pedophiles. Fair enough. <laughs> Don't think that's me. <laughs> that's that's a little, me hissing. little snake hissing there. No, that was no, that was a cat hissing. Oh, was that a cat hissing? Yes. Well, I thought it was that your drawing on the cover, and this is you've illustrated your own memoir with your own beautiful. Is it pencil or ink? It was a pen. Pen. It's a couple of pens. A couple of pyros there. Just from yeah, from Woolies. used very beautifully. Your drawings of spiders, of snakes, of animal, of yourself. You said your mum taught you. Gee, she taught you well. You're a beautiful drawer. Oh, thanks. It's beautiful not finished. Draftsman. That's not finished. Yes, well, I was on a I'm tight deadline. So. Get on with it. Finish it, will you? Oh, thanks. Yes. <laughs> right, Virginia, I'll get back. <laughs> the time I got it terribly wrong was... There's too many times. <laughs> Probably joining Twitter. <laughs> oh, do you regret that? <laughs> yeah, look, oh, it, you know, there's times that it redeems itself. Um, We've been talking about that this morning. The Twitter people get terribly upset when you criticise the community they're part of. But I don't know, gee, it can be an awful place. Yeah, it's one of those, everything, there's pros and cons to everything in life, I think, you know. And like I I say in the prologue of my book, you know, pain and joy are inevitable in 
in um, you know equal measure. So um, how do you, how do you manage your your online life then? What's do you have a a tight circle around it? Does it not exist? Oh well, I switched off from it. I don't know. If, I don't know if I'll go back. And I'm sure that my detractors will be clapping and cheering at that. But I don't know. Look, it's. Yeah, it's, it's, I find it sometimes scary um, how dependent we've become on technology. I'm quite a bit of a mm. Luddite. I, um, yeah. Hence the, the pen drawing, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I'm very old school. Like I never, I never did graphic design or anything like that because I was always distrustful of the computer. It's going <laughs> to steal my work. It's going <laughs> to gonna break down on me and then I'm never going to get it back. Did you write the book freehand or on a computer? No, <laughs> I did have to write the book on the computer, but I was Ultimately even distrustful would. of that. I was <laughs> worried at first. I was like, I'm going to have to write all this by hand. I did write. I did took I, I took a lot of notes mm. and, you know, chicken my chicken scratch. I had lots of things going, you know, at once. And as you as you know, you've read the book, you know, I'd go off on these tangents yes. for like five pages at a time about philosophy and then I'd go back to Nan. It's, <laughs> it's your memoir. You can do what you like. It's a small thing, but I'm still so proud that I... Well, I guess, well, it's not a small thing, but I'm still so proud that I, I stood up to um, the man who abused me four days before I reported him to police. So it's not a small thing at all, but I told him that I thought he was a monster. Yeah, I'm still proud of that. You I'll always in, be proud of that. You live in the same city as him. How hard is that? Mm, not anymore. He, he's okay. left the country, apparently. Ah, all right. Mm. I'm unaware of that. Radio. Um, but there was a period of time there where I know that, the, you know, as you said, Tasmania is not a large place. So that must have presented personal challenges for you and those who love you. Mm, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, true. That thing has defined your life. How could it not? And you also, you, in some ways, I don't. Yeah. It, don't give him that much power. Okay, no, that's a that's a, that's a fair pushback. Because my question wanted to go there about how you, when you take account of what's gone on in your life, and you call out someone like him, and that's a you know an unavoidable chapter. How do you make sure that it doesn't then define the path or? Or define how you see the rest of the world. Oh, how do you I mean, that? it's just one. It's just one, one person whose path has crossed with mine. And yes, it's you know, it's a, it was a significant time. But now, you know, I'll be twenty-eight in December, which means that um, after that, and twenty-eight is sort of like a, it's a, it's an interesting number. It's sort of like a the end of cycle. Mm. Sort of, it's an end of cycle number. And after that, uh, um, it'll be more years that I've lived not knowing him. Than, than years that I've lived knowing him. And so, you know, I think that that's kind of a powerful thing. And I've sort of, you know, written this written this book and it's a huge weight off my shoulders. And I think, you know, finally so much is coming to light about um, the, the, the truth of, w- of what he did, you know, and children, for children, you know, relationships are life and death because you are learning from people who have authority over you, you know, especially when your brain is not fully developed yet. And, 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 they, so, and, they, and they have control of your they, life. And they do, and they do, especially yeah. when they, they deliberately psychologically abuse you like that. Yeah. And so it's been a very powerful thing to, you know, get this stuff out there and also to, to, to empower others or to help at least empower others. I mean, I, like I always say, I can't speak for everyone, but to, but to, you know, be participating in alongside so many survivor advocates, you know, from a very, you know, broad, um, you know, diverse intersectional community to be, to be just one in this community, to be participating in, to be witnessing this astronomical, you know, sort of 
and I, I get chills when I just even think about it and talk about it, this, this power shift, you know, where we're taking away this shame and we're mm. redirecting it to the perpetrators of these crimes. You know, because what happens is it's still we see it in the media where perpetrators get raised up to their credentials. You know, it's like, oh, world-class piano player or whatever it is. And then survivors get you know, splayed out literally and they all their behaviour is exposed. They get reduced to their behaviour. So it's perpetrators get raised to their credentials, survivors get reduced to their behaviour and it's all the attention is on them and what they have done. And it's like, that doesn't make any sense at all. I feel like that's changed for all time now, particularly following everything you've done. My secret pleasure or my guilty pleasure is... Schlock horror. So oh. like David Cronenberg, but oh, yeah. like the real, yep. like the animatronics yes. that, that you can see. So you've the, seen the, have you seen the recent David Cronenberg? Oh, no, There's but I'm one. talking about like bad taste, like yeah, literal yeah. the mm-hmm. film bad taste and yes. like those really, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I do know I what love you mean, that, yes. Like Reanimator and Scanners, Videodrome, yep. Debbie Harry. Yep. Love that. I love that stuff. Like the really bad horror films well, that are like so bad they're good. Cronenberg's got a new one that apparently is um, like goes even further than he's ever gone. Even fans of his have said it's close to unwatchable, so you're going to love it. I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> Just a quick reflection on the famous Scott Morrison side eye. When all is said and done, how do you feel about that how, moment? How many times? I, they can't get I enough of it, I said it all with my face. Grace, they can't get enough of that. I said it all with my face. <laughs> so think, many times. I think that's true. Well, look, he's just lucky that that I said it all with my face and not with my foot. Yeah. <laughs> Don't think you're wearing heels. Oh, no, you're wearing some pretty solid heels, I think, that day. Grace, um, a pleasure to spend time with you as ever. Her memoir is called The Ninth Life of a Diamond Miner. You can find the reason for that in the book. Um, it's about a uh, And that was a, a joke, by the way. That was it's, a joke. That the, was a joke. The foot, the, people can handle the joke. Oh, if they can't, that's all right. That's going to be a headline somewhere, isn't it? As it all often is. Grace, oh, no. Take care. Oh, la, la, Go la, well. La. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. You Don't Know Me is presented by me, Virginia Trioli, produced by Kelsey Rotino, Jules Hay and Shelley Hadfield, with thanks to Katrina Palmer. Audio production by Ross Kay. On the next episode of You Don't Know Me, you'll hear from singer-songwriter Anthony Kalia. He was runner-up on Australian Idol in 2004, and his version of The Prayer became the fastest-selling single by an Australian artist, and he's gone on to perform it everywhere, on stage and screen. I might even try and nudge him into singing something too. I said I'm on a vocal rest day. Yeah, right. (laughs) I can hear you're on vocal rest day. That's on the next episode of You Don't Know Me. Thanks for listening. Hey folks, Mon Shafter here from Innies and Outies. Just dropping in to let you know about the return of our fabulous award-winning Rainbow Coloured Podcast. Every episode we dive into juicy, uniquely Australian queer stories about coming out and staying in. Technically I came out around the age of three. At the time I didn't really label it as, oh I'm transgender, it was more, I'm a girl. Mum, when I grow up will I look like you? I came out via just one massive Facebook status on New Year's Day after a night of debauchery that we'll not be going to detail about. <laughs> I feel like that was possibly the worst way to come out. The way I told my mum was, hey mum, I'm doing something that's wrong in the Bible. 
When I came out as non-binary, it was really accepted. I was recently travelling through Thailand and I loved this, people call you Sir Madame. They just put in both. So they're like, oh, Sir Madame, come this way, which was amazing, an amazing experience. It's beautiful. Like every time it happened, I thought, oh, thank you. I feel so seen. <laughs> so join me for season two of Innies and Outies. You can find us on the ABC Listen app.